Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello, welcome to the Common Bridge. We have an extraordinary guest today, noted investigative reporter Gerald Posner, author of 13 books, columns, and much research. It's an honor and privilege to have you here with us today, Gerald. Welcome. Uh, Rich, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Um, uh, uh, my wife, Trisha Posner, had a great interview with you on Common Bridge, and so I'm very happy to be here as the second Posner to join you. Yes, you're following in some big footsteps there. And I hope I got the number of the books that you've written, and you're publishing today on Substack and on your own website. And where else can people find Gerald Posner these days? On Forbes, I also have, I'm contributing to Forbes occasionally, but they can find me on Twitter at Gerald Posner and at Substack at Just the Facts with Gerald Posner. Just the Facts with Gerald Posner. Now, Gerald, you've been at this a long time, but for the people that might not know of you, what were your early days like? What was your education, your career arc, and what led you to become one of the leading investigative reporters in the United States today? Rich, I mean, uh, actually by uh, chance in some ways, I mean, it's interesting in the sense that I didn't grow up thinking I, I want to be a reporter or a journalist. I grew up thinking I want to be a lawyer. And uh, I grew up in San Francisco in the 50s and 60s, went to uh, a uh, Catholic high school, St. Ignatius College Preparatory, then went on to Berkeley, and then finally went to Hastings Law School. And I graduated in 78 as and had a law degree. I went back to New York to practice because I wanted to see what those big Wall Street law firms were like. Um, and uh, I ended up at one. And then after a couple of years, realized that wasn't my cup of tea, the big practice of law. I went into a small practice. That's when I met Tricia, actually, in 1980. And I had a couple of twins come into my office through a friend. They had been experiment victims at Auschwitz, the biggest Nazi death camp. Um, experiment on by Joseph Mengele, the so-called angel of death. At the time, we thought he was alive, well, and still living in South America. And what they wanted was they wanted the German government or the Mengele family to pay for the extra cost they had for medical care every year as a result of the experiments he had done on them when they were children in that Nazi camp. And I did it as a pro bono. You know, I figured I'll, I'll give my time. And that turned into a four-year project. We got thrown out of federal court. Um, I eventually turned it into a biography of Mengele, uh, got his diaries. We found out that he was dead. Um, it was uh, it was my first book, and some of the proceeds went back to the twins. Did it with a co-author from England who was a great investigative journalist, John Ware. And at the end of that project, I said to Tricia, you know, instead of going back to law, um, I was told when I was in Paraguay, when I was looking for, for Mengele and Nazis, by these Corsican heroin dealers who were down there in Safe Haven, they said to me, you know, the heroin trade used to be an honorable business, but it's been taken over by the Chinese. I never heard of anything like that, by the triads in Hong Kong. I said to Tricia, evidently, the triads now control the heroin business. Would you like to do that as a project? And I knew I'd met the right person because she said, yes. We went off to the Golden Triangle for a few months, and that became the second book. And since then, as you said, 13 books later, I 
I like to approach things that others stay away from because they think that they're either too difficult or too many documents or too much material or you can't come to an answer. So I'm, I've had enough hubris to tackle the JFK assassination and conclude to many people's disappointment that it was Oswald alone. Um, the King assassination, in which I think it's Ray and maybe his brothers and um, some uh, some racists from St. Louis who were funding him. Um, but I've also looked into the Saudis and 9-11, uh, what happened with uh, the Vatican and 200 years of finances. My last book was a history of the pharmaceutical industry in America. So I like the big projects and I'm very lucky to get uh, publishers that allow me to come up with an idea, not knowing, and this you will understand and appreciate, not knowing what my conclusion is because I don't know what it is until I report it. So therefore what they're doing is they're banking that I'm going to do a good job of reporting come to some conclusions, but I'm not sure what they are until I finish. I, I hate this idea that people sell books with an idea of what the book's going to say before they've done their work. You can't do that in this business. Well, I am in strong agreement with this. And we've had Matt Taibbi on the show a couple of times. And Matt was a darling of the left in some respects. He was an avowed liberal Democrat. He wrote a book called Insane Clown President, where he was astonished at the antics of Donald Trump. He was writing for Rolling Stone magazine. And as soon as he started calling out what some of the facts were giving the censorship on big tech platforms, all of a sudden, He's thrown out of the tent. It's like, wait a minute. He's gone to, quote, the other side. And we're seeing so much of that in our reporting. And I think this level of distrust is very dangerous. Recently on the Common Bridge, we had author Steve Drummond talked about Harry Truman and the work that he did leading up to the war economy in World War II and then getting from the war economy back to a civilian economy. And people trusted what. Harry Truman was doing. And now yeah. we fast forward not that far into the 1960s. So much controversy around the Kennedy assassination. I personally read a half dozen books on it. My cousin actually wrote a historical fiction called Kennedy Must Be Killed. And my late cousin, Chuck Helpy, wrote that. And during the course of this, I asked, was my first introduction to you. I read Case Closed. And if I remember the conclusion of case closed, and it's been some years, that Oswald did have time to fire three shots because the first one was in the chamber, went over the car, hit concrete, injured a man named Tag, I believe. Second shot was a little low through the back, near the spine, caused him to throw his arms up. Third shot after the car had come to a stop, caused the president to fall over. And I think it was your book that talked about the president sitting in a back brace. And that's why he couldn't fall over after the second shot. Is that a pretty accurate summation there? It's been a, again, been a while. Yeah, no, absolutely. Your memory is, is excellent. And you know, Rich, even if you then conclude, even if you look at all the forensics evidence, you look at the shooting, who does the shooting, and you conclude as I do that it's Oswald He's the only assassin in Didi Plaza who hits anybody that day. Um, you still have the tougher question, is he doing it for himself or is he doing it for some group? And, and so the, people think that if you say Oswald was the shooter at Didi Plaza, you solved the case, but it's not. And, and I think something critical for listeners of The Common Bridge, I went into that book thinking that it was likely the mafia. So, you know, I was wrong. I, we all have a bias. You know, people say as journalists and others, I, I, I have no bias at all on a given issue. I'm going to write about Trump. I'm going to write about Biden. I'm going to write about uh, China or COVID. I don't have any feeling. No, we all have 
from what we read, we see, we talk to other people, we have an inkling of what we think the story is going to be. I thought the story was likely the mafia because of Ruby's, what looked to me as a silencing of Oswald. I changed my mind during the course of it. I didn't think you could solve the case as it was, wasn't the intent of what the book was, the Random House. But what you do as a journalist is you do follow that evidence to get there. And I think you're absolutely right when you say about Taibi, the politicization of, of, of writers today and journalists. One of the things I'm still proud of, and I don't know how long this will continue, is that when I have a book out, it's not political. It's about the facts in, in let's say, the pharmaceutical industry or in the Vatican or in JFK. People will take it for their own political purposes on the right and the left, and they'll take a point that they like, and then they'll use that. But I've been able to go on to MSNBC and to CNN and to Fox for uh, talking about my books. That's very rare because nowadays you tend to get slotted into one or the other. Once you appear on Fox, MSNBC doesn't want you, vice versa. I've written uh, two op-eds on the Sackler family in the last year and a half and one on COVID for the New York Times, but I also wrote a piece recently for the Wall Street Journal. Normally, writers fall into one or the other. So I'm doing my best, if I can, in this day and age, to say I'm writing in a nonpartisan manner. People may use it in a partisan way. And, and I'm talking to both conservatives and the liberals, but I agree with you. It's a, an increasingly small part of the journalism sort of population that is able to straddle both sides of this. Um, and, that's, and more should be able to do that. Yeah, it should be just dispassionate. What do the facts reveal? What might the logical conclusion? And I can tell you, we've had guests on this show on the Common Bridge that have said, I went on MSNBC and I quit getting invitations to Fox, or I went on Fox and quit getting invitations to MSNBC. And I've seen guests, many of whom I've known for many years, capitulate and fall into one of those camps, writing things that I know they know are not true, because that is what drives clicks and it drives ratings. And it's a sacrifice of their soul and integrity in order to make a buck in this new media ecosystem. No, you're right about that. And I do think, I mean, one of the things, for instance, um, even on Substack where I am, and my Substack's free, I don't charge for it because I'm still paying my bills so far by doing other things. So I want to keep it as open access to people. But, you know, I... I'm not very good about writing outrageous headlines or or something that's going to attract a lot of eyeballs. I build it sort of slowly, you know, one at a time. But you do get the ability there to put up things that may not fit directly into one slot or the other. Um, I find for my own purposes, a Substack is an outlet for very much in the middle journalism of what I do. That's why I call it just the facts. Might be a little boring by MSNBC or Fox standards, but that's all right um, because it allows me to do a little straightforward reporting without worrying about pleasing an editor or an editorial policy at a given magazine or journal or that. Exactly. And that's what we used to turn to reporters for. And there are very few left. And, and this is, again, where I'm thinking about the suspicions that we have in government and the questions around the Kennedy assassination. Why Oswald? Why Ruby? And, you know, we had this spate of lone killers, seemingly lone killers, acting with precision. It was not only Oswald and Ruby, but it was Sirhan Sirhan. James Earl Ray, Arthur Bremer. Where did they come from? How did they get so close? And how were they so effective? 
And then, of course, we had John Hinckley, and I think that's pretty understandable as a mentally ill young man. And then we had, you know, a couple women took shots at Gerald Ford, weren't very successful. That's where people's suspicions have said, really, one more lone gunman, no direct explanation for their actions. And gosh, they pulled off these massive crimes that harmed our society. That's right. No, I think you're absolutely right. In my view, and having studied this for so long, the Kennedy assassination is sort of the the mother of modern conspiracy theories about government and the beginning of the loss of faith in government. The reason in particular that assassination starts it off, and you said something very important when you gave that list of lone shooters or the assassins, only two of them, one was Oswald and the other was James O'Reilly. Instead of going up to their target, the person they wanted to kill, and pulling out a revolver and then shooting them, as Brenner did with Wallace, or, or you know, as, as Hinckley did with Reagan, they, there was a rifle shot from a distance, and they disappeared in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. Now that immediately raises people's suspicions of a professional assassin, Day of the Jackal, the idea of, oh, we've had a rifle shot from a distance. This isn't a typical assassination. Then when the person is arrested for the crime, in the case of Oswald or James O'Reilly, people say, oh, they, they're not capable of pulling that off, a high-speed rifle shot from a distance. We need a professional assassin. So there's immediate doubt. Then with Oswald, you have him killed 48 hours later in police custody by a man who looks like he's out of central casting for the mafia. There is, there is an answer to why Ruby does that, and it's not a conspiracy if you get into the details, but from a surf, superficial view, I understand how people look at that and think, boy, there's something fishy. Then what do we do, Rich? We have a government-appointed blue ribbon panel, which we have no faith in nowadays anyway. All officials, some of them a former head of the CIA, the CIA and the FBI could be suspects in some people's view, and yet they're doing the investigation for the Warren Commission. It turns out years later, we learned that there was a cover-up by both of those agencies. The CIA was covering up the fact that they were trying to kill a head of state with the mafia. It wasn't Kennedy, but it was Castro. They failed nine times to even wound him. And the FBI was hiding evidence that it was too close to Oswald because J. Edgar Hoover was petrified that somebody would point a finger at the FBI and say, wait, you knew this guy was that unstable and you didn't do anything that he was got a job on the motorcade route where the president was working. So they had to make sure they knew about Oswald, but not too much. The problem is that when the Warren Commission came out with its lone assassin story, its book, its, its evidence, there was no one there to defend it over time as people sort of took pot shots at it. So Mark Lane, the lawyer, did a great book called, you know, Rush to Judgment. It attacked the commission from right to left. A lot of people put out books questioning the commission. So over time, people lost faith in that lone assassin conclusion. And then what happens? We have Vietnam. We have the government lying to us about the number of deaths and how long the, the war is taking. We go on to Iran-Contra uh, years later. We have Watergate. We... We lose faith in the institutions and the government leaders that are supposed to be there for our benefit. So no wonder people start to think, you know what, in all those assassinations, I think there was something more behind it and the conspiracies continue to grow. So I, I do see the Kennedy one as kicking off the modern day loss of faith in government in many ways. And I understand if they don't study it, why people are suspicious about that case, because there are a lot of things on the surface that look fishy until... You get into it and look for the facts. Indeed. And one of the things that I only read from you when they talked about the single bullet theory and that the bullet was pristine and found on the 
stretcher of Governor Connolly that it was undamaged. But you're the only one I know that actually said, no, I went actually and looked at the bullet and it does have damage to it. You know, it's so fantastic because you had to apply to the government to get access to get in the archives and see the bullet and everyone's got their you know gloves on and Trisha was with me and we're able to see it from a distance. You're not able to get it and flip it around or whatever else, but they describe, they meaning conspiracy theorists basically describe it as almost pristine, a virtually pristine bullet. Well, you know, Rich, that's like saying a woman is almost pregnant. You know, you're either pregnant or you're not. It's either pristine or it's not. And that bullet is flattened down on the side. Remember, it's a it's a 160 grain solid, uh, you know, metal, uh, full jacketed bullet uh, used in military operations. It's supposed to pass through somebody's body. That bullet's developed so that after, you know, the bullets it used to sort of explode on hitting a person's body. This would lead to a wound that could be treated during wartime. Um, it's the, the gun that was used, a, a cheap uh, military rifle that was Italian from World War II, is a good killing machine, although it happens to be an inexpensive gun. And that particular bullet is flattened along the side. You can see where it was, and that's the portion of the bullet that hit against Connolly's rib as it passes through Kennedy, the high rear neck area, goes through the president without hitting any bone at all, and it's tumbling as it goes directly into Conley, the governor of Texas, sitting in front of the president in the limousine. We know it's tumbling because the entry wound on the back of the governor is an inch and a quarter long, which is the exact length of the bullet. And it hits his rib on the side. That flattens the bullet down as it comes out and eventually ends up in his thigh, where it pops out and flops out when he's being treated in emergency sessions at Parkland Hospital. Now, it's one thing for me to say that, and then you say, okay... Gerald, that's an interesting theory, but so what? Everybody's got a theory. But this was tested by groups uh, of, called Failure Analysis, uh, did quantum work back in 93, and others since then. Today, all day long, you can reproduce that bullet. It wasn't done correctly by the FBI. They didn't have the ballistics uh, knowledge to know how to do it at that point. But today, on tests that have recreated it with two dummies that look exactly like the president and the governor in terms of their size and weight, the distance from where that shot was taken, that shot is fired. The bullet slows up as it goes through the two, exactly as it did on that fateful day on November 22nd, 63. I reproduce in the book one of the copies of the bullets and reproduction firing looks exactly like the exhibit that's at the National Archives. Indeed. And I've been to Dealey Plaza, again, not an investigative journalist, but more of a hobbyist and interested. And I got into the window that Oswald was said to shoot from, and people were saying, oh, it's an impossible shot. And I get there, I go, that's not that hard of a shot. And when you think about the sequencing, if anybody that's been to a range, first shot's high, adjust, the second shot's too low, third shot, now with a stationary target, high, adjust, low, adjust, boom, headshot. It all yep. makes sense to me, yet we have Shots came from the Dal Tex building behind Oswald. Shots, of course, from the Grassy Knoll. And there were police officers on site that day that had Korean combat experience that thought shots had come from there, but could be echoes, that the Secret Service shot Kennedy, which there's no evidence about that. Jim Garrison has his theories. The CIA was involved. The Cubans were involved. The mafia was involved. And, you know, I guess based on your reporting, if you put the CIA and the mafia together in nine attempts, they're zero for nine trying to even get a fingernail on Castro, probably wouldn't have been a successful hit anyway. So interesting you say that, Rich. I've always been uh, sort of, you know, stymied at the idea that the 
the CIA and the mafia who really wanted Castro out because the mafia wanted to get their casinos back. They had a lot of money at stake. The CIA did not like uh, a Soviet, you know, agent government 99 miles away from Miami. So they had real incentive to get him out. They were keystone cops on those assassination attempts. But somehow we're meant to believe that that same unit pulled off the perfect crime in Dallas. When I say the perfect crime, because here we are coming on 60 years later and stooped people like me and we can't find what really happened. So, no, I don't think that happened. And you said something else also of interest. The One of the things on the, on the shooting sequence, and I think this is key and a lot of people forget it, the, as you mentioned this early on that the bullet's already in the chamber. That starts the clock running. We know how much time there is in between shots because the Zapruder film, which is the home movie of the assassination made that day by Abraham Zapruder, which many people have seen, serves as a time clock. It's 18.3 seconds uh, frames to a second. So you can tell between the frames of the shots how much time. So Oswald takes the first shot and that misses, you're right. And then he adjusts lower, takes the second shot three and a half seconds later. So he has to redo the bolt, aim, he has a, 20, a, a four power scope, he aims, he shoots, misses, it's too low. He then has his longest period, five and a half to six seconds for the third shot, the headshot. And what happens coincidentally is the driver of the presidential limousine, the oldest member of the security detail that day for the Secret Service, uh, William Greer, he turned around. He told the Warren Commission, I turned around after the first shot. I heard the noise. I saw the president and I turned back around after the second shot. And I was zooming out of Dealey Plaza when I heard the what sounded like this terrible sh uh, sound in the back of the third shot. That's not true because the film doesn't lie. He turned around to look at the president after the second shot had been fired. And he's turning back around the car, which had been moving around 10 to 11 miles an hour, is now moving four to five miles an hour. No evasive actions at all. You mentioned before that the president is in a in a sort of a wrap, a back wrap that's keeping him propped up. His head lolled a little bit to the left. Jackie is trying to push down on his left elbow to see what's going on. And he gives Oswald, the shooter, if you don't want to call it Oswald for people who object to that, the straight on shot. So it looks like it's 25 yards away in terms of Oswald's scope. He has the full six seconds. He takes the shot and he still almost misses. It hits Kennedy in the high right rear portion of the head. An inch and a half higher, it misses and the president lives. But that's the nature of assassinations. We now know if Hingley's shot was an inch over, Reagan could be dead. That's the, you know, the difference between surviving or not on these. And Oswald pulls off the, they say he's not a great shot. I agree. Three shots, one works. Um, and that one just gets in, but it's a, it's a deadly shot. I know that there's other evidence that he was observed practicing with his rifle and, and again, not that difficult of a shot. Gerald, when you talk to people about the Kennedy assassination, are there one or two areas that people are most skeptical about? Like the arrest of Oswald, like, well, what was he doing in the movies and how do people know he was there to go find him? Or is it Ruby's behavior or something else? Where do people that won't buy into the conclusions in case closed challenge you the most? I'm surprised that still after all these years, because my book's now 30 years old, um, <laughs> uh, that they focus on Dealey Plaza and the shooting sequence. I, I'd say, and I'm, I've never thought of it in that sense, you know how they break out, but let's say a third or more want to talk about the single bullet. That still has people fascinated. They've seen Oliver Stone. They've seen JFK. They've seen the bullet do a couple of somersaults, decide where it's going to move, make a left turn, a right turn, then go on to hit Kennedy. So they think 
Oliver Stone couldn't be that wrong. So there has to be something crazy about that so-called bullet. And and they also, there are a number of canards that have been repeated, Rich, so many times in different magazine articles by people, whatever else, they believe them to be true. And they, they're very resistant to change their minds, such as I often hear that the U.S. military and the FBI went and tried to recreate the sequence of shots that Oswald was supposed to make, and they couldn't do it. No expert in the world could fire it as fast as he could and as accurately. That's just not true. As a matter of fact, they repeated it all day long, I, the early Warren Commission material. So you know, it's just not the case. Uh, there's, there is some suspicion about Ruby, uh, but more than anything else, I find this to be the case. They say, well, what about the fact that the mafia wanted Kennedy dead? What about the fact that the CIA didn't like him because he, you know, it, uh, after the Bay of Pigs? And my point to that is, I think that there were there were conspiracies brewing against Jack Kennedy in 60, 61, 62, just as there are probably conspiracies brewing against almost any U.S. president. If we had taken a snapshot at the time Barack Obama was in, or George Bush was in, or Donald Trump, the question is... If an assassin makes an attempt or pulls off an assassination, the question is, is that assassin doing it for themselves or for one of the groups that may have wanted the president dead? So today we might have anti-abortion activists. We might have Islamic fundamentalists. We might have right-wing zealots. There could be any number of suspects. In the day of Kennedy, you could have had mobsters sitting around a table saying, you know, his pre- his brother is just trying to break us up. That no good SOB, I'm going to make sure he's dead. Uh, you could have had somebody in the intelligence or KGB or at Castro who knew the CIA was trying to kill him say, I'm going to get Kennedy first. But the challenge that I have for anybody is you've got to tie Oswald into those plots. It can't do it by telepathy. There's no cell phones, no texting. We don't have the internet. So somebody has to visit him in the six weeks or so before the assassination, because that's when he returns to the United States after he fails to get into Cuba, where he's trying to get from Mexico City. No one knew when he went down to Mexico City, the president was visiting Texas. So when he gets back to Texas around October 1st to November 22nd, where do the plotters bring him in? That's the challenge nobody's able to answer. And to your point, the trajectory of the bullet, anybody that wants to see can go to the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. The limousine, the actual limousine that carried the president and Governor Connolly is there. And you can see that the governor's seat is a jump seat and it's inboard. It's not on the door as the president's. And it's just one more piece. You can physically walk up to it and look at it and see how the car is set up. So I thought that Oliver Stone's movie was, frankly, garbage in terms of a serious documentary. Him and Michael Moore probably went to the same school of mockumentaries. But recently, this this topic came up because my understanding is that some new CIA documents came out. There were people, including Robert Kennedy Jr., RFK Jr., now running for president, that said, aha, you see, this confirms our theory that the CIA was involved in the plot to kill President Kennedy. But you've looked at these notes and these documents from the CIA. What's in there? The You know, it, it, nobody can cite any of the documents that have been released in the National Archives in the last uh, five years when they're supposed to get the last batches of documents out. The thousands have been released and say it supports in one iota a conspiracy because they just don't. Now, what happens is I have looked at those documents. I've gone through them dozens of hours of time. What the government 
did itself a disservice by holding on to these files for so long. They should have released them years ago. The American public had a right to know what the government knew about the assassination. But what we are finding out, Rich, is that the reason they held on to these assassination-related files, as they are called, because they end up having intelligence information about something that the CIA was doing that it wanted not to disclose to the public. So for instance, some of the Mexico City files, everyone wants to know what Oswald was doing in Mexico City. The files that have been released so far talk about the fact that we had uh, agents who were working for us in the Mexican government who were providing information back as CIA assets. That's something the CIA didn't want public for a long time because those individuals were still alive. Remember, it's coming on 60 years, but people were working for the CIA in their 20s. Some of them are still alive. They didn't want information about where they had moved the field offices, for instance, in, in some of the countries. Uh, they held on to information where Yuri Nosenko, a defector, some of those files were just released, talks about who's running the assassinations program for the KGB and how the CIA is trying to penetrate it. So this is a case in which the material that's come out, and, and I'm angry in some extent about this, I'm angry at the CIA. I understand why they've tried to hold on to it. I know that that's their typical process of protecting means and sources and that, but they should have worked out a deal with the National Archives and the government long ago to say, we're going to get everything out there. And if we have to redact one name, we'll do it. If we have to redact one little... And so this has been a case in which people think, hey, if they have nothing to hide, why don't they let everything out? And I agree. It does make people suspicious. So we all sit here and wait for the last documents. But I can say this with confidence, that let's assume for a second it was a massive conspiracy. Oliver Stone's theory is right. It was several areas the government involved in killing the president. They did pull off this, what I call perfect crime, because they haven't been exposed to this day. No deathbed confessions, nothing else. Does anyone really believe that such a diabolically clever plot at the highest level of governments will be unmasked 60 years later because one of the plotters forgot to keep a document that exposes the whole conspiracy and sent it over to the National Archives, where it's been sitting for the past few decades, waiting for it to eventually be disclosed. It's just not going to happen. If there was such a document, it would have been destroyed long ago. So I hate to be you know, the Debbie Downer in this situation and say, you're not going to get a smoking gun document. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but I don't think you're going to get a smoking gun document here. The whole handling of this is the kind of beginning of mass disinformation. And now disinformation, malinformation, misinformation, censoring, the tools are so much more powerful. And when things aren't reined in or aren't disclosed, suspicions go up. And as suspicions go up, it's easier and easier to do things like insert into the consciousness that Donald Trump was having prostitutes urinate on a bed in Moscow. And I remember when that story came out, I'm like, huh, I wonder what the facts are. I'm not, I don't like Trump. I didn't wish he had never been president or candidate. But this guy's said to be a germaphobe, and he's not dumb. He knows that the hotel rooms in Moscow are monitored. And, you know, you, the cameras are real tiny these days. How could he trust the women if they did exist? Yet this was accepted because people wanted to believe it. Yeah. And MSNBC made really a career out of promoting, but sensationalizing something that never happened. 
it's one of the most, and you're right, it's separate completely from Trump, who at times, you know, I just, I, I shake my head. He's so the antithesis of what I think of some, you know, as a reasoned political, you know, quiet leader. But that particular dossier comes out. And the first thing you're doing if you're an investigative journalist is testing it, trying to, if you had access to it, you'd be going back and trying to track down some of the sources and the places and see what it was. That's what you think the government would do. But what happened in terms of the the media, and this is unfortunate in terms of journalism, is that otherwise good journalists, I'm not talking about the host on the shows who, you know, frequently are just commentators who are, are bringing in ratings. But they would have decent legal analysts on. They would have national security people on. They would have historians on who I would look at because I flip the channels. I look at Fox. I look at MSNBC. I look at CNN. I want to see what they're all saying. And on MSNBC in particular, uh, the people that I would have thought would be much more judicious in their approach were, in fact, sort of, you know, uh, the uh, cheerleaders for the most you know, horrific interpretation of that and embracing the the truthfulness of that particular dossier. And when it later proves not to be true, there's no mea culpa, no apology in this way that we are today. People just move on to the next thing. It's as though you're an analyst on CNBC predicting whether IBM is going to hit $100 or $20 and two analysts disagree and the one who's wrong never admits they were wrong. And the same thing's happening here. It's really unfortunate because this sort of, uh, you know, partisan camps that we have put ourselves in and that journalists often join in and historians join in on really does a disservice because most people, Rich, this isn't a surprise to you, won't be a surprise to your readers, to your listeners. They aren't getting their news from three sources. They're getting it from one. They're watching MSNBC all the time or Fox all the time. They want to hear what they already like. And so if you're, uh, if I will talk to somebody who's an MSNBC only viewer. And there are things that factually have taken place on a story like the Trump dossier or other issues regarding the border or whatever. And they're just unaware of it because it's not covered there. That's where they're getting their news. The, um, and uh, I, I think that that's a, it's, it's a major uh, fault. And we have more information than ever. And people are getting less informed than ever in some ways. And when the Durham report came out, it was kind of a to the ramparts move on MSNBC, basically taking the same disproven things that they had reported on before and using it to try to counter the Durham report, like the laughable, the Trump Tower meeting. And you remember the hoax about there was a computer connection between Trump Tower and a bank in Russia. My background is computer systems. And so I remember when that story came out, I'm like, what are they talking about? That's not even feasible. And of course, it turned out to be nothing at all. And yet the guy that promoted it was found not guilty by a D.C. jury, Mark Sussman. That's right. And I watched the, you know, the hearings uh, with Durham coming up before uh, the, uh, the House committee. And uh, Jerry Nadler, who was the uh, head Democrat on that committee, was asking questions still about that connection to the bank, that digital connection. Did you ever investigate it? You spent $6 million and you've had some people leave your investigation while you were doing it and you produced only two indictments. Is that right? And both of those failed to get a conviction. So you still see the, the uh, you know, I expect that on the Hill, but it's disappointing in that we're so far apart that you're just ready for a food fight 
day in and day out. And, you know, I look back to the older days and they are indeed old days. Um, I would have problems maybe with Bob Dole or somebody else, but those, the old line senators that used to think or the, the people in Congress that you could come to an agreement with the other side, it meant you had a compromise. You weren't happy. You didn't get everything you wanted. They didn't get everything they wanted, but you, you didn't have the base of your party ready to, you know, charge the, uh, the, the party and say, we'll never vote for you again. And this, uh, sort of, I think the internet, social media has definitely made it worse. I use the internet. I'm on social media, as you know. I find it a useful tool, but I also think that it tends to be an echo chamber so that people often hear just what they want and they get more engaged and locked into their viewpoint so it becomes more difficult to persuade them to move to the middle. Just to put a cap on this part of it, the facts are there that the entire steel reporting, as it was captioned, was bought and paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee through Perkins Coy, through Fusion GPS, through Glenn Steele. That's under sworn testimony and documentary evidence. That's what occurred. Yet today, you can't get half the country to admit that that's what did occur. And one thing on that, Rich, which is so interesting. So as a reporter, as a journalist that does investigative work, if you tell me that, and I happen to say that I agree that that's correct, but that doesn't tell me whether the dossier is real or not. So I'm not surprised that in a presidential election, the other party will do what I call some dirty work, hire somebody to go ahead and get a dossier or a file full of dirt on the candidate. That's unfortunately the way that dark politics works. So I get that. So when you tell me all of that, I would think that would be easy for Democratic enthusiasts to admit, yes, that's what happened, because that doesn't mean the dossier is right or wrong. You then have to determine that on its own. Turns out the dossier is false. It doesn't have any correct information. So what they, they weren't buying something that was real, and they probably didn't care about that. But it's interesting that the fact that the Hillary campaign through this cutout was doing that, that doesn't surprise me. Then the question becomes, you know, what did they get for their money? And uh, they got something that turned out to be good because they got the FBI chasing a story that was fake. Well, the way I look at these things is I'm kind of like the dog that didn't bark theory. And I said, okay, what didn't I hear in that scenario? Well, what I didn't hear was the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign taking credit for finding out that Trump had done all these things in Moscow and colluded. Because if it was true, they'd be shouting it from the rooftops. Look it, we found this on the guy. So the fact that they're saying nothing about it, that to me speaks volumes. That's right. Although the other thing that happens, and you know this so well, they have their own sources as reporters at the big national papers and magazines. So you'll see reporting in the Washington Post that's making their talking point on a specific day regarding it. And it's much better for the Hillary campaign or for any campaign to have a national reporter at a prestigious newspaper raising the issues and points that you would like to raise. It doesn't look as though it's as political. This has been a great conversation, by the way, because this is what I'm, I'm trying to get to is with the 4th of July coming up and our quest for a more perfect union. And, and I don't think the founders and framers would be surprised that we are not a perfect union because we're still a work in progress. Are we on a good track? Are we on a bad track? I often challenge people, if you're going to design a government today from the ground up, blank sheet of paper, what would the structure look like? And it's hard to imagine something that wouldn't look 
a lot different from what we have, but I believe it's being abused and it's being abused because you have to have people in there with good character. So that's why the story I did about Harry Truman, the story today with you about the way things are being reported. And you've been involved in some other topics, if we could spend a little time on that. No, Rich. Uh, one of the things is I've been spending the last few months uh, looking into uh, the uh, uh, the question of gender affirming care for minors, 18 and under. Uh, this uh, what I call explosion and contagion almost in young kids at 12, 13, 14, 15, thinking they're another gender, uh, TikTok videos, chat rooms available, and medical communities in the endocrine society and the American Society of Pediatrics that have embraced this idea that you as a child can be put on blockers that stop your natural puberty and then put on hormones for the other sex and then eventually transition into surgery. And I will tell you that I just ran a piece, as you know, a week ago in the Wall Street Journal called The Truth About Puberty Blockers, in which I think that they border almost on child abuse because of the the level, uh, the amount of harm that's documented on there that's being ignored. And one of the things that has happened, there was just a decision the other day uh, by a federal appeals court that overturned the ban in Arkansas on puberty blockers. That's going to be appealed and continue to be fought in courts. But we have entered a situation that I really think in 10 years or 15 years, and hopefully sooner than that, uh, and I hope I'm not wrong on this, that we will look back and say, what were we thinking? What were doctors thinking? You know, you, you talked about this. You had a, a, a broadcast on this and you talked about lobotomies in the 30s and how science and doctors thought they were good ideas. And well, it, at some point, I do think we're going to be looking back and wondering how we went this far out on children, the most vulnerable patients to think that they're capable of giving full consent. And I'm walking on a very, very fine line here because... The landmine here is that if you are, con the Republicans are considered to be passing laws to ban puberty blockers. That's what the progressives think. And the Republicans think that every progressive just wants to put a child into the, the assembly line for, for trans uh, surgery and that. And I'm trying to do an approach that is harsh and critical on the industry and on the money that has funded it, but at the same time, not find myself representing one of the political camps. And um, I said no to a couple of offers to do television or cable shows after the um, op-ed ran because I didn't want to immediately be considered the person coming from this position, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, I'm just plugging ahead about to find out maybe in the next month or two if a traditional publisher like mine, Simon & Schuster, somebody else may want a journalist to take a look at this in a book for a couple of years and come up with the story of how we got here and what's happening. I don't know if any publisher will be willing to do it, a traditional publisher. My fingers are crossed that they will. Well, I like the way that you're approaching the issue, and it is a contentious and it's a very delicate issue, yet it's trying to be overwhelmed by both sides with catchphrases. The whole notion of, quote, gender, but affirming care means that if a young person comes in and says they want to be called by pronouns of a different gender, if you don't do that, you're not affirming. Well, now we know that there are, might be reasons that you don't want to do that, that the child's depressed, that the child has autism. The answer can't be, let's start this chain of events that's going to lead to a surgery. I was just going to say one thing you said that's important there. This idea of what they call social 
transitioning, which is using the pronouns, the name, dressing the child in the other clothes. Even the Dutch who started puberty blockers in 1998 said, by the way, don't embrace social transitioning because if you do, the children are, you'll get false positives. The children will be more susceptible to saying, I want to go on to puberty blockers and hormones because you've already started them off the path. Whereas here in the States, if you misgender someone, you can get into trouble. So they've totally embraced that aspect. And regarding the, the uh, developmental problems, six times the rate trans children in in terms of um, being affected by depression, having instances of autism, other problems along the way. And we really are not considering those. But what happens is, one last thing, there's a thing called watchful waiting. Uh, that's what the, some of the Europeans do. Watch the child and see if the child on their own grows out of it. Is it an adolescent phase? 13-year-olds want to be Superman one day, want to be a girl the next day. They, it lasts very little bit of time. In the cases in which they did not do social, uh, this transitioning, and they did not start them on puberty blockers, 85% in a Dutch study went through and said, oh, I'm not really the other gender. Most of those turned out to be gay. All right, that's fine. The But they had passed through puberty without wanting to change their gender. You needed to give them some t waiting time, and that's what's not being done in the current medical rules. Well, in the NHS has done a study in England that the correlation between autism and youth reporting gender dysphoria is unmistakable. And th those that no autism and an autistic child can focus in on one idea and not be able to change that. When I think about the, the trust factor in society, the thought occurred to me is this, how much money and organization does it take to spread an idea so fast? So school boards, local governments, state governments, the federal government mandating language changes, medical schools, now media, all on the same sheet of music, Johns Hopkins in recent days <laughs> saying that a lesbian was a non-man attracted to a non-man. I just can't imagine the amount of money and organization. And in preparing for my interview with Lior Sapir, I tried to get trans activists to come on. And there's some really well-funded NGOs out there Absolutely. that have an agenda. And I'm like, where did the money come from and what's the end game? The, well, I'm definitely, I'm looking into where the money came from. And I do think that there are a handful of activist billionaires um, who have funded it for a while. But the other thing is that the greatest thing that happened for the trans activist community was the ability in the late 90s or thereabouts to attach the T to LGB. So you had a lesbian, gay, bisexual movement that was fighting for rights, that eventually fought for the, the rights of protection and not being discriminated against, then fought for marriage, was able to win the rights for marriage, and then fought for the rights for adoption and having children and won that right. And then once the T gets attached to it, and it's not like a light switch, it happens over time, there's a lobbying, it becomes, means the transgender for most people, big corporations, schools, others, becomes a gay rights issue. And if it's a gay rights issue, they have to follow the orthodoxy, which says don't discriminate against a small handful of people. You have to go out of your way to do whatever they say you should do to be able to accept them. And that's what I think has happened. It would be as if there was a social rights movement for, you know, 
what I used to call graveyard sh- workers, midnight to eight in the morning. And somehow they got themselves attached to racial preferences or whatever. They were thought of in the same way. It became a racial issue. Uh, you know, the, people would be bending over backwards to make sure that they were treated better. And the same thing has happened here in some ways. So that I think that that was the the moment at which the debate changed. Plus, many people that I talk to say, oh, it doesn't affect me. I don't have a trans child. It's not an issue. They don't realize that not only the harm being done to many children, thousands and thousands of children, but even to medical research down the road, when doctors are trying to decide how much funding for breast cancer and four or 5% of a sample group may be biological men, but identifying as women, the cancer rate looks lower. So breast cancer doesn't get as much funding. They're all types of subsidiary issues as a society, which I don't think many people are focusing on. A local ad here in Detroit for one of the big health systems, and here's a patient. Well, when my chest cancer was there, and it reminded me when I interviewed Tricia, where she was really offended by that, and rightly so, that the research needs to be fact-based, and we need to take a pause on this. And you know, when I look at the logic of puberty blockers or the social transitioning, start with social transitioning. There's no backward path. If Susie says she wants to be Robert and later says, you know, maybe I really am Susie. Oh, no, 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 no. You're being brave to be Robert. Okay. And we're not affirming you if you, if you say to be Susie and then, okay, well, I still don't feel like I'm that next gender. Well, the puberty blockers. So maybe you're 13 and you're not developing as fast. So on that for two years, now your peers are 15. They've developed and now you're less like them. That's right. You're more ostracized. You're more different. And, and it's very interesting what you said, because if you are, you have troubles, you have a, a body dysmorphia, you don't like the way your body looks, you're not so sure of yourself, you're not a popular kid. Once you come out at most schools in America and say, by the way, I identify instead as Jane, not John, and, uh, and uh, you know, the you're, you are encouraged. Your teachers, everybody else says, what a brave decision. Fantastic. Your parents are told you're brave. You go to being the kid who was unpopular, being the most popular in school. And if you ever change your mind and try to be a regretter or detransitioner, as I call it, and I've spoken to some of them, the pressure not to do that is tremendous. You know, but people say you couldn't even decide, uh, you know, your own sex. Trish, uh, you know, often says that when she was a child, she was a tomboy. It's a word you can't use anymore. She used to have boys as friends and like to play with the truck and everything else. Nobody ever suggested maybe you should really be a boy. She probably, you know, she would have thought of that as just the phase she was going through. But I do think that that happens in terms of, of children, the pressure put on them. And you know, Rich, so very well, the power of language and the people who are marketing this know it. So now puberty blockers, because of after I had done the piece in the journal and there's more criticism about them, I see that Scientific American had a doctor recently who suggested that they should appropriately be called puberty pause. So somebody's thinking of the marketing because they think blockers, that sounds big. You're blocking something that you shouldn't be doing. But puberty pause sounds like you're just holding you know, the uh, light switch for half a second before you turn it on. And they're clever in terms of doing this. And so we may be seeing more puberty pause in the future than puberty block. I've never heard that phrase, by the way, but I'm not sure that their marketing people have thought this through because, you know, we all had friends that when we were in the seventh grade needed to shave and, you know, we were like, you know, hitting our twenties and my Nordic background, that wasn't that big of a consideration 
And if someone says pause, it's like, no, 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 no. You know, I don't want to. Absolutely. So true. Look, I went, I grew up in an Italian American neighborhood in San Francisco and a lot of uh, guys in uh, grammar school, you know, by the seventh or eighth grade had, you know, a little bit of shadow growth. That's true. I shouldn't make light of it, but, and this is one of the things about language to your point that the language shifts. When you finally root out, okay, what are the real facts here? Well, let's, we're going to shift the language. And as you pointed out, we as the United States, we're going against more progressive countries, Finland and Norway and the United Kingdom, and I believe Sweden now. This is not a great idea. You yeah. know, I'm wondering, and, I, and I, I thought I mispronounced his name, but Joseph Mengala. Mengala, Mengala, right. Given some of the things he did as a Nazi, is there any parallel when you started examining the so transgender? They didn't trans- do, they mean the Nazis. They did a lot of horrible experiments. We don't even know Mengala's, his papers were lost after the war. And so it's not even clear what he was trying to do. Um, but there's nothing like this. But let's assume for a second, I'll give you a hypothetical. Let's assume that Mengele was taking children, uh, boys, and they were twins. So one was a control and one was the experiment and, uh, and had the equivalent of a medication that could block the development of puberty while they were in the camp for those two years, two and a half years, and then started to give them hormones from the opposite sex to see if they could become more feminized or more masculinized. Could he create a different sex in a child? as one of the pioneers in the in the gender industry did in the 20s and 30s, essentially, could, could nurture be more important than nature? If I told you they were doing that, and forget for a second even going on to surgeries, removing a penis, uh, doing a, a double mastectomy on a girl at 12 and 13 and removing the breast, you would say, appropriately so, that's a war crime. That's what the Nazis were doing. That's a war crime. And today... We're calling it gender-affirming care because it's been endorsed by the American Pediatric Society and the Endocrine Society. And it's remarkable to me that in 75 years, we've moved from one end of the perspective. I don't mean to in any way diminish the Holocaust or the crimes that were committed there. and don't mean to say they're the same, but I understand your point precisely. And anybody who's unable to see that underestimates, I think, the shift in the paradigm in what has happened in uh, in two generations. I hope that as you continue with just the facts that you continue to unravel that. What other stories are you working on at just the facts, if you're at liberty to say? Yeah, absolutely. I've just, as a matter of fact, obtained, I've been fighting for four years to get them about 550 pages more on the Sackler family, the, the early days of the Sackler family, their political involvement, FBI investigations of them uh, from the federal government, from the FBI. Now I have to go through them, make some sense of them. I will publish the documents in full and PDF files and say what they are. That's a couple of weeks away. I've had my fishing line out, my journalism line out on a number of Jeffrey Epstein stories, not the sex part, but the money part, um, the extent to which possibly Russian or British intelligence might have thought that he was adept at moving money around and might have thought that he could um, assist one of their assets in moving money. Epstein may have then thought that that provided him full protection, which it did not, obviously, because everyone ran for cover once the charges were brought. So I've been chasing that a little bit. Um, I always say that the, what Tricia and I need more than anything, uh, we're sort of a two-person operation, we need 30-hour days because there's so many good things to pursue and they take time because so many times we end up at a dead end. So, you know, I should be so lucky that everything that I 
spend a month to trying to get somebody to talk to me on then turns into a gold mine. Sometimes you get good information and sometimes not. It's the nature of reporting. For my little program here, I try to bring people in from all perspectives. And I also extend the invite. If you've got a view, you'll get a fair hearing. I don't ask gotcha questions. Be treated with respect. The patterns that are emerging about who's willing to talk and who's not willing to talk are stark and getting more divided. Again, I'd encourage my listeners, my readers, my viewers If you hear an opinion piece, try to go find the opposite and importantly, see what channels that opposite view is coming out on. And if it's on one of the partisan outlets, you kind of know that it was pre-programmed. It's going to try to influence you. So that would be my advice as we try to fight for a a free society and and a free press. Gerald, what didn't we talk about today that we maybe should have covered? Uh, you know, I, I think you've covered some of the, the highlight issues because the real question is, you know, what's the state of the country that I'm never able to give a good answer at. I don't think any journalist can, even the historian, maybe the historians can give you a wider view. But I think that what our role is, is to give you a snapshot of what's taking place. And then in 20 years, the historians will look back and say, oh, this was clearly taking place. This is what was happening. We should have known about this. It all looks so simple looking back. We know what we should have done, right? So I'm never really capable. I know where I think some of the issues are and some of the problems, but I don't know how that'll play out. And I am hopeful that voices like yours and reasonable voices will be able eventually um, you know, to, to carry the day. Uh, there are people who are trying to hit that middle area. Um, I speak to one occasionally. I've done his show a couple of times on CNN, Michael Smirkonish. He's on in the morning on Saturdays. He's on because he's not an evening person getting uh, 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 2 million people watching because he tends to try to stay in the middle. He's not exacerbating or you know lighting a fire under one side or the other. So there needs to be more people like that. And maybe uh, we will see a rise of it. Certainly, without any doubt, independent journalism uh, things like Substack, the, the Mike Taibis the, uh, uh, of the world who are able to to have carved out a large megaphone for themselves, uh, the uh, Schellenberger and others, I think that's a great addition to the whole mix of journalism. Yeah, indeed. I, I 100% concur. And again, people can find you on Twitter, Substack, Forbes, and I have a website called posner.com, just my last name, P-O-S-N-E-R.com. On there, uh, there's information on each of the books, some reviews, there's uh, some uh, uh, videos. And I also have a YouTube channel that I only put something up when it's uh, fresh uh, like yours or that. But there's a YouTube channel with videos that go back 30 years. There's a fantastic 17-minute, if I could give one plug, 17 or 18-minute segment where I am on Phil Donahue in 1986 and the guest is Roth Mengele, the only son of the Nazi war criminal. It's a riveting 18 minutes of television, very, very tense, um, live television at its best. Um, that's up there. So YouTube um, as well. And you wrote a book about the children of the Nazis, correct? Yeah. The um, uh, When, Rich, the I'd gone to Random House and said, by the way, after Oliver, uh, before Oliver Stone had done his film, I'd always been interested in the Kennedy assassination. And so I went to them and said, by the way, What about a book that said, not finding who killed Kennedy, but said, I'm examining all the evidence. It can't be the KGB, the CIA, the FBI, everybody else. I'll give you a primer of what the real evidence is. We'll do a book like that. 
read that book before you read anything else. And they said, no one's interested in a book like that. So I went off and did a book on the sons and daughters of top Nazi war criminals, Hitler's children. In the time that I was working on that book, Oliver Stone did JFK. It's the only good thing he ever did, I say, for uh, for me, because he energized the Kennedy assassination for the American public. Great filmmaking, terrible uh, documentarian in history. And I went back to Random House and they said, sure, let's we can do that book. There's a market even for a small book like that. It wasn't supposed to be case closed, but uh, that's how I got from Hitler's children to, to Kennedy. I love the journey. Uh, Gerald, any closing comments for the listeners, readers and viewers of The Common Bridge? I just think, you know, viewers of The Common Bridge, people who are already listening to you understand the importance of, of sort of doing what you said before, uh, testing what they're reading. If they read something that absolutely leaves them slack jawed, they can't get over it. They think, oh, my God, I never heard that anywhere else. Um, is that possible? then there's a reason why you may not have heard it anywhere else. It may be good or it may not be, or you might just be getting the first draft of a breaking story that's going to change history like Watergate. But the odds are that it could also be um, a politicized piece that has uh, pushed the edges of what's true. All of us are short of time. We don't have time in the modern society to, to be fact checkers on journalists, but you do end up following the journalists that you are comfortable with, who you have some faith in, you may not always agree. You know, I say that, Rich. People think that as a journalist, I want people to agree with me. No, I want them to read my work and see what is the basis of the evidence that I use to draw my conclusions. And at the end of that, you can still disagree. Somebody can read Case Closed and say, I still think it's a conspiracy for X, Y, and Z, and I'll debate that all day long with you. But we've got to get out of the name calling in that. So I urge your your viewers to find the journalists that you're comfortable with who at least are going to report something and give you an insight into what's happening in this topsy-turvy wild world of ours. I think that's a great conclusion to our talk today. My brand promise is every episode, there's something for everyone to not like and keep coming back because we're not doing affirmation programming. (laughs) We've been talking today with leading investigative journalist Gerald Posner today, a wide-ranging discussion about trust in journalism, about the facts behind the Kennedy assassination, about new issues in the news today, transgenderism and others. Again, encourage you to follow him on any of the platforms. And this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.